If you walked into a Starbucks and asked, what's the, the biggest problem in the world right now? Or what's wrong with the world right now? You'd get a lot of different answers today. And that's just a way of trying to capture our own cultural moment. But if you think about what, what's wrong with the world right now, I'll tell you what's wrong. Crooked politicians. Can I get amen? Yeah, absolutely. How about, uh, how about uh, people not wearing enough masks? Oh, uh, people wearing too many masks. Wait, which is it? I don't know. But one of those is a problem. People getting vaccines. People not getting the vaccines. One of those is a problem, right? That's a big problem. Uh, maybe it's just COVID in general. That's a problem. Gender confusion. That's a problem. Conflict between ethnic groups, injustice, that's a problem. I mean, there's a lot of problems. You know, my friend John Newton back in 1777, somebody asked him, you know, basically that question, what's wrong with the world? And he says, basically the passions of discontentment, right, passions of discontentment, of pride and envy are driving the human heart. So they're fueling conflicts in the world. Remember the conflict that was going on, by the way, in 1777 between some rebellious colonies and uh, the British Empire? Well, you live in one of those rebellious colonies, don't you? He said, it's that passion of discontentment. Then he said this. He said, we are fallen into a gross state of idolatry, and self is the idol we worship. You know, somebody asked him, what's, what's the deal, John? What's Pastor John Newton, former slave ship captain, what's the deal with, with the world? Why is it so messed up? And he said, pride, envy, discontentment that's driving us. He said, we've fallen into idolatry. And the minute we start talking about idolatry, we're talking about what do we value most? What do we worship? And he said, the thing is, self is the idol we worship most. We are our own gods. The truth is, he wasn't wrong. Every day, we're in the midst of a worship battle, practically speaking. Every day, there's a question, what will I value most? What will I love most? And this morning in this passage, we walk through Joash's reign, and we see some failures, not just on Joash's part, but on the parts of others as well. And as we walk through this, we're going to see, I think, a necessary warning and corrective to just be careful about how we approach God and how we think about valuing God. There's, there's a lot of ways we can have uh, you know, subtle distortions and subtle corruptions of our pursuit of God. You remember Joash, again, I reminded you, but his grandmother, Athaliah, she had murdered all the other descendants, and he was protected and rescued uh, by the priest Jehoiada and his wife Jehoshua. And so he was now seven years old. He's been declared king. Um, he's been installed. You know, everybody's happy. They, they put to death Athaliah. Things seem to be good. And it's kind of like the sky's the limit for this young king. Will he lead the southern kingdom in reform? And will he finally set things right? And so we kind of have this, like, moment where we're like, he's got good tutelage under faithful priests. Like, yes, this is it. It's going to happen. But as we pick it up at the end of chapter 11, verse 21, we are going to quickly find out that things didn't really pan out for Joash and for the southern kingdom. In chapter 11, verse 21, we read, Joash was seven years old when he became king. In the seventh year of Jehu, Joash became king, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. That's, that's a long reign. That's good. His mother's name was Zibiah. She was from Beersheba. Verse 2, throughout the time the priest Jehoiada instructed him, Joash did what was right in the Lord's sight. Let's walk over that one more time. Throughout the time the priest Jehoiada instructed him, Joash did what was right in the Lord's sight. That's ominous wording, isn't it? As long as the priest Jehoiada was around, 
Joash did what was right. The implication is the priest Jehoiada was not always around. Verse 3, Yet the high places were not taken away. The people continued sacrificing and burning incense on the high places. Let me explain the high places to you. So here's the deal. High places are natural places of worship in Canaanite religious thinking, okay? At the tops of these hills, and Israel has a ton of hills, so there's a lot of opportunities for high places. You might remember King Solomon, because of all of his foreign wives, he had a bunch of high place worship sites set up. These would be little miniature altars, okay, for worship. They could worship Canaanite gods or goddesses, or some of them were even set up to worship the God of Israel. But the, the, the truth is, once the temple was built, high places were a no-no. They were not supposed to be used. In fact, they were essentially a, a syncretism, a blending of Canaanite worship and what God had called them to do with worshiping him at the temple. So people would go to these uh, high places, there'd be an altar, they would bring a gift, a, an incense gift, or sometimes a, a sacrifice of an animal, and it would be kind of a, a smaller scale deal than thinking about the temple, but they would have this sacrifice made. They would eat part of the sacrifice in a special uh, worship meal is the idea. And then they would come there, and the idea is you would come in order to kind of get something from the god or goddess that you're worshiping. So I need my crops to go. So, so I need my crops to grow, so I go to worship Baal on this high place. Or I, I need, um, you know, we want to have more kids. And so, you know, we go to this spot and we worship the goddess Asherah and she's going to give us more kids. Or we're going to war and so we need the, the national interest to be blessed. And, you know, so we go to this high place and we worship and we eat the special religious meal. And that was the idea. But the problem was the Israelites had taken that concept, that Canaanite concept, and then they had just subbed in Yahweh for the Canaanite gods and goddesses. So they're like, oh, we need, uh, we need uh, to have better crops this next year. Okay, we'll go to this high place and worship Yahweh there. Or, or we need to, again, have, we want more kids. We go to this high place here. Are we going to go to battle? We go to the, and so then they got into this bad pattern of blending what the world said worship was with what God had called them to and valuing him. And so it was impure. And so uh, the idea of leaving the high places alone and letting them exist is a negative when you read through the Chronicles of the Kings in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. It's not a good sight. Uh, it's not a good sign of the king's spirituality and his leadership of the nation. That warning right there, plus this issue of him not worshiping God unless Jeho Jehoiada was around, that tips us off to something that's central to our passage today. And that's this truth. It's that real worship is seen in a real relationship with God. You've got secondhand faith here with Joash because he's basically only following God when Jehoiada's around. And then he's leaving the high places up, which is, again, a sign of like, hey, you know what? If that's the way people want to do it, then we'll just do it however they want. And that's what fits into the culture, so that's what we'll do. There is no real relationship or valuing of God. Now, to understand this fully, we have to just remember that the term worship does not only refer to singing songs of praise to God. We sometimes use it that way in our kind of just everyday use, but we really need to think about that term worship as a much bigger term than just singing, right? Worship is about valuing God or valuing something else instead of God. It's what do we put in the highest place of importance, right? What has the greatest worth in our sight? And so here the, the idea is there's... There's false worship happening of the true God because they've blended in stuff from the culture there. That and false worship in the sense of Joash says, yeah, I'm following God, but he's only following God when he's propped up by a priest. Real worship, though, is seen in a real relationship with God. When it's not counterfeit or bogus or pretend, when it's actually the real deal and it's manifested in this actual daily dependence on God in relationship. 
You can think about the problem of secondhand faith because secondhand faith isn't real, right? You can think about somebody propping you up, right, in your faith. If, if that's the situation, if somebody else is dragging you along your life of faith and it's not your desire, it's not your passion, it's just you do it because your parents are making you, your grandparents did it, it's just what your family does, whatever, somebody's giving you pressure to do it, you think it's best interest for your work situation or whatever, right? There's no genuine love for God. There's no fruit of the Spirit in your life when that certain other someone is not around. Well, then we got a problem. Because that's not real faith, and it's not a real relationship with God. It's just convenience. It's just, well, it's counterfeit. You know, in fake faith, we do often blend in ideas from the world and just kind of put up a masquerade or a show of religion. But when we do that, and this is the, this is the difficult part, when, we, when our worship mimics the world, the, the truth is our desires are our gods. We're back to self being the number one idol. Because this is the idea. You're thinking, I want X, and so what do I have to do to get X? I've got to show up to church to get it? Fine. Go to this high place to get it? Fine. Right? And I have these wants. I have these things that I want. And, and basically, the God that you worship is a servant to your desires. Joash wasn't the real deal. And he facilitated this kind of basically false worship, right, by not dealing with the, the fundamental issue of these high places. Of course, because his faith proves not to be genuine, right, it's secondhand faith, we see it's, it's all just a show. Now, what are these desires that might lead us to go to a high place or might lead us to pretend religion? Well, it, it's the same stuff that the Canaanites dealt with. They want financial prosperity. We want financial prosperity, right? They want the crops to grow. We want good profit at work. We want the raise. We want the, the, the markets to do well. They wanted uh, cultural acceptance. They wanted to be accepted by their neighbors, so they blend you know, their worship with the neighbors, and that's what we want. We want to fit in with the neighbors often. We don't want to be looked at as the weirdos. They wanted that person to agree to marry them. They wanted their family to grow. They wanted their kids to be successful right, and get into the right schools, and that's what we want. Right? We want those things. They wanted their nation to succeed in battle, and that's often what we want. We want we have nationalistic concerns. We want our nation to prosper and all of that. The truth is it's not that different of a, of a motivation. What led them to worship in high places is often what leads us to fake or counterfeit faith because we say, God, we, I need you to take care of this for me. I need you to give me this. Think of it this way. It's God, give me when we pray, or God, fix this or them. It's seldom, God, you are worthy. God, may your name be, be considered holy. May your kingdom come. Those are different requests than God, give me this. God, fix that. And I know it's a subtle difference, but it's an important difference. Because Joash, it seemed like he was doing all the right things. It's just he was only doing the right things when people were watching. Now today, we, we definitely see this, this uh, mixture of genuine worship with the cultural ideal of worship, where we turn ourselves into our gods. It's certainly clear in the prosperity gospel, which says you should, you should be a believer in Jesus, and if you're a believer in Jesus, you will be rich and happy and successful, right? Or we could see it in churches where uh, there's temptation to change the message of the Bible to fit with the culture's kind of baseline morality. So you could argue maybe there is no baseline morality in our culture, but nonetheless, like there's, you know, this idea like, you know, the church needs to accommodate to fit the circumstances, well, that's very different than saying, no, no, wait a minute. We're called to a real relationship with God, and that's what real worship is. Joash is headed in the wrong direction. Verses 2 and 3 make that very clear. The problem was it wasn't just Joash. Even the priests in the southern kingdom in Jerusalem 
We're headed in the wrong direction. Watch verse 4. They need to repair the temple. Okay, verse 4. Then Joash said to the priests, All the dedicated silver brought to the Lord's temple, census silver, silver from vows, and all silver voluntarily given for the Lord's temple, each priest is to take it from his assessor and repair whatever damage is found in the temple. So pause right here. In general, this is like a good thing. Okay, why was the temple in disrepair? Because Athaliah was, ter- was you know, a, a terrible you know, ruler, and she had claimed the throne and was, was uh, promoting worship of false gods and goddesses. And so the temple, the true temple of Yahweh, had fallen into disrepair. It needed to be repaired. Joash, at some point, probably early in his reign, had said, we need to repair the temple. And so here was the task to the priests. There's gifts given. And aside from the gifts to support the priests financially, that was a separate group of giftings here. But here are gifts, just general gifts given, a random assortment of gifts. All those funds that come in, priests, you take them and you repair the temple. That was the, that was the job. Not terribly complicated. Okay, verse 6. But by the 23rd year of the reign of King Joash, the priests had not repaired the damage to the temple. Now listen. I've been involved in some projects that took a while, okay? All right? But, but that's a long one, okay? And we don't know exactly at what point in his reign Joash instructed them to do this, but the implication of the narrative is it's been a long time. It's been way too long. Now, 23 years. If it was the full 23 years, we can say this. Number one, the priests totally failed in their responsibility to do this repair. But also, it's not like Joash was paying really close attention. You kind of get the impression 23, 23 years later, he woke up and was like, oh, man, I forgot I asked him to do that. But they didn't do it. You know, now we need to deal with it, right? So nobody's coming out looking good in this scenario. It's a problem. Is the temple worthy of being repaired? Of course it is. It's the temple of the Lord. It should be repaired. But they're not quite figuring it all out. So they got to change the accounting system. Why? Because the priests are pocketing the money instead of repairing the temple. They were driving sports cars, okay, rather than, you know, fixing the, the temple. So verse 7, so King Joash called the priest Jehoiada. He's the lead priest, the high priest, and the other priests, and asked, why haven't you repaired the temple's damage? Since you haven't, don't take any silver from your assessors. Instead, hand it over for the repair of the temple. Basically, they're going to use a third party. So the priests agreed that they would receive no silver from the people. They would not be the ones to repair the temple's damage. Then the priest Jehoiada took a chest, bored a hole in its lid, and set it beside the altar on the right side as one entered the Lord's temple. The priests who guarded the threshold put into the chest all the silver that was brought to the Lord's temple. Whenever they saw there was a large amount of silver in the chest, the king's secretary and the high priest would bag up and tally the silver found in the Lord's temple. Then they would give the weighed silver to those doing the work. Those who oversaw the Lord's temple, they in turn would pay it out to those working on the Lord's temple, the carpenters, the builders, the masons, and the stonecutters, and would use it to buy timber and quarried stone to repair the damage to the Lord's temple and for all expenses and for temple repairs. However, no silver bowls, wick trimmers, sprinkling basins, trumpets, or any articles of gold or silver were made for the Lord's temple from the contributions brought to the Lord's temple. Instead, it was given to those doing the Lord's work, and they repaired the Lord's temple with it. No accounting was required from the men who received the silver to pay those doing the work, since they worked with integrity. The silver from the guilt offering and the sin offering was not brought to the Lord's temple since it belonged to the priests. What are you supposed to take out of all that? Let me just highlight two important observations. Uh, The first is this. The priests couldn't be trusted, so they had to get somebody else. That's a problem. Because you would think that those dedicated and set apart to serving the Lord in the Lord's house, in the Lord's temple, right, that there would be an assumption of integrity there, that those men would be trustworthy. And yet, 
X many years later, 23 at the most, these guys hadn't done the job. And so they had to actually institute this other system of accounting for the, the silver in order to do what? In order to facilitate the repair of the temple. So that had to happen, which is shocking, right? And it's a warning. Just because you're close to the temple doesn't mean you're the real deal. Real relationship, right? Real worship is seen in a real relationship with the Lord. These priests are kind of shown to be bogus. In addition to that, we also see they didn't build any or make any silver or gold implements for the temple. And I just would remind you, if you can get back there in your mind, to 1 Kings, when we read about Solomon and the initial building of this temple, right? They built all this stuff, and Solomon facilitated gold stuff to be built, gold utensils and all the, the trappings to go in the temple. All of that was dedicated to the Lord and paid for as a gift to the Lord for, because God is glorious and he's worthy of that level of gift, right? The highest standards, the nicest stuff. God is worthy of that. And so, you know, here they had made all this stuff. And here we're kind of like, well, they repaired the temple, but I mean, they didn't even make a, a silver wax trimmer for the candles. Like they didn't even have, a, they didn't, well, frankly, they didn't have that level of priority for the Lord. So again, it's like, wah, wah, wah. Like the, it's like, it, doesn't, it never got there. It was a repair and a restoration, but it wasn't a restoration. It was basically a big strikeout at the end. Real worship is seen in a real relationship with God, but the lack of integrity and the greed in the priests here is a warning to all of us. Because, and here's the deal, just because you say you're close to God, and just because you're around other people that are close to God, and just because you work in the temple dedicated to God, does not mean you are a true worshiper. That's a scary thought on the one hand. Right? It's sobering. But on the other hand, it's a gift. Because God is saying to you today, he's saying, listen, don't assume you're the real deal. You need to ask the question, am I a real worshiper? Or is there a lack of integrity in my life that exposes the fact that I'm not? Is there a greed in my life driving my decision making that exposes there's a problem here? Well, this example of the priests and their, their lack of integrity and greed you know, it, it shows the, it's the red flags, like something's not right there. And when our worship is only a, a claim to worship, when it's not the real deal, when we don't have a real relationship, there are going to be warning signs. And when we see them, what do we need to do? We need to call it what it is. And what do we need to do? We need to repent. Lord, forgive me for this lack of integrity. Lord, forgive me for this greed. What's the big deal with greed? Well, here's the reality. When worship accommodates greed, we are what matter most, right? Because, again, if, if worship accommodates me getting all the things I want and it's all about me, then you're the God again. Self is the idol. And so now all of a sudden we're like, oh, wait a minute. I worship to get what I want. Therefore, I worship in the religion of me. I'm, I am worthy of most praise. So we care about our own stuff more than anything else, our own bank accounts, our own houses, our own cars and phones and investments and all the rest. You know, there's a reason why Jesus spoke so much about money. In fact, he had to clarify. It's an either-or situation. You can't worship both God and money. you got to choose. And money is a tool to be used, but it is not a God to be worshipped. And if your worship accommodates you basically justifying your greed, then you need to question that worship. You need to say, wait a minute, who's my God? Who is it that I value most? It doesn't mean we don't bring our needs to the Lord, right? But rather, it's a commitment to God's kingdom above all else. Just speaking about the financial issue, if, 
you know, we, we could ask the question, is my financial, right, relationship with the Lord, is my stewardship of funds, you know, given to God for his glory, is that determined by the tax code? Or is it determined by my passion for his glory? I mean, it's, it's a fair question. It's the bigger question is, of course, what about in every area of my life, not just financially? Am I just getting by and, again, secondhand faith, just kind of going through the motions? Or do I genuinely care about God and his kingdom? Is it I need to repair the temple because I should? Or is it the temple needs to be repaired because God is worthy? Because real worship is seen in a real relationship with God. You know, it's, it's easy to fake that in the short run, but in the long run, it will be exposed, right? That, that false worship. And so that's what's happening with Joash and the priests here. And it's, it's uncomfortable. And ultimately, a lack of real worship will let you down. Because watch what happens. Verse 17. At that time, King Hazael of Aram marched up and fought against Gath and captured it. Then he planned to attack Jerusalem. Okay, I know what you're thinking. We really need a map to help make this clear. And I'm with you. I feel you, people. I'm with you. So here's the map. Uh, here's the reality. We have the, oh, my laser's dead. Well, that's not going to work, is it? All right, so that's embarrassing. But uh, you can see the northern kingdom of Israel here. I want you to look up in the far northern right corner. You've got the Arameans up there, Damascus. That's where King Hazael was. Okay, I want to show you. Gath is all the way right down here. See Judah? Here's Judah. There's Jerusalem. So that army either came via the coast or it actually came right through Judah. But one way or another, that army came right down and they conquered Gath. That shows the weakness of Judah militarily at that moment. Okay? They're in trouble. I mean, for Hazael to march the Arameans right through their backyard one way or another, and then to say, I'm going to go up and capture Jerusalem while I'm here, all of that is showing they're in deep trouble, right? And the king has a resource when the nation's in trouble. God instructed the king, what should you do? In fact, Solomon in 1 Kings made that clear. When, when this happens, when, when foreigners invade and when we're in trouble, what should the king do? The king should get on his knees and look to the temple and pray and ask God for mercy and grace. And the promise is that when the king does that, the Lord will intervene and the Lord will rescue us. We've got notable examples through First and Second Kings of God doing that exact thing. We're headed for more of that, by the way, in the future. But not this king. What's his solution? Verse 18. So King Joash of Judah, and king of Judah there is like emphatic. It's, we know he's the king of Judah, but it's like, he's the king of Judah. He should lead them in trusting God. That's, that's, that's what's loaded in that phrase, right? It's king Joash of Judah, what did he do? He took all the items consecrated by himself and by his ancestors, Judah's kings, Jehoshaphat, Joram, and Ahaziah, as well as all the gold found in the treasuries of the Lord's temple and in the king's palace. And he sent them to King Hazael of Aram. Then Hazael withdrew from Jerusalem. That wasn't a win. That was a loss. Because King Joash said, I know what I can do. I know what needs to happen to rescue the people. I will take all of the things that have been made in the last three reigns, right? I'll take all the things that have been made and dedicated to the Lord, those things, and I'll take all the monies that are in the Lord's temple dedicated to the Lord's work. I'll take all that stuff, and I will use them to bribe and to pay off 
King Hazael of Aram, which that's a common practice at that time, right, in relationship between nations. A stronger nation is going to call on the weaker nation to pay them off so that they will not attack them, basically. And so King Joash has believed that they are the weaker kingdom. He's believed that the things dedicated to the Lord should instead be given to this pagan king and to the pagan nation. And that's how he's going to secure his nation. And while it seems like it worked on the one hand, on the other hand, we are supposed to read this as a tragic failure in spiritual right leadership. Where the king, instead of leading the people to trust God, the king said, you know what, we're going to buy our way out of this mess. But you've been there and I've been there. We've been in these moments in life when we're struggling, right? And instead of turning to the Lord and going in dependence on God and valuing God above all else, we come to God and we say, Lord, here's the situation, here's the circumstance, and I am asking you to intervene for your glory, right? Because your kingdom matters most. Lord, I'm bringing this to you. Instead of that, we go to Amazon and we fix our problems by buying. We get the solution at Costco. We get it at Target. Right? We go, we're going to get the fix. We're going to buy the fix. We're going, to, we're going to get the solution ourselves because we don't need God. We have money. And the things that are supposed to be dedicated to God end up getting sold on eBay to buy what we need. It's all twisted and messed up. It wasn't a win. It was a loss. It was a failure because real worship is seen in real relationship to God. And you're kind of left here going, yeah, Joash, it all started so great. I mean, he had this great upbringing under the priest Jehoiada, at least, and he had this, this you know, direction where he could go and honor God. And instead, what happens? He leaves the high places there. He gets all in this tussle with the priests over the repairs of the temple that he actually doesn't care about. And at the end of the day, he goes and just sells all the stuff anyway in order to do what? In order to, to secure something that the Lord had promised to provide for him anyway. You see, when worship is about self, we miss out on God's provision. We miss out on opportunities to see God provide. And often we lead ourselves away from God rather than towards God. It is shocking that Joash will plunder the temple instead of pray towards it. But then I wonder, isn't that often what we do? We think, you know what? I'm going to solve this problem myself because I can. I wonder if we can. The priests are in the temple Joash at least is the king who paid for the, or, or, you know, forced the priests and forced the others to do the renovation of the temple. You'd think that they're all in great shape because of that. You'd think those people are spiritual, but in this passage, they're, they're proven to be otherwise. Because worship is not about proximity to a building. It's about a relationship. It's so funny about the temple. Because here are these guys, they're, they're in the temple, they're around the temple, restoring the temple, all that stuff, the stuff in the temple. And when Jesus arrives on the scene later, I don't know if you remember the scene in John 2, but, it, but Jesus was, uh, you know, ministering and, and teaching in the temple. He confronted this failure, right, this failure of uh, the leadership in Israel to allow the temple to become a marketplace. And what happens? Jesus says, you know what, you tear this thing down, I'll rebuild it in three days. You remember what they said to Jesus? This temple took 46 years to build. Again, 23 years for the repairs, but Herod the Great had a much more ambitious program, so it was a longer project, okay? But 46 years to build this temple, Jesus. You're going to tear it down and rebuild it in three days? And John tells us, he wasn't talking about the building. He was talking about himself. Because he is the true temple. And now, we are, now we're prepared 
to see that real worship is seen in a real relationship with God through the greater son of David. You see, because now it's not about, oh, the, the place and the proximity and the building and the money and all of that. No, now it's about Jesus, the living temple. It's about Jesus, the one who has made the way for sinners to be reconciled to God. You understand that was the point of the temple, to facilitate God dwelling with his people by virtue of sacrifice. How is Jesus the temple? How is he the better temple? He's the temple because by his death on our behalf, he pays for our sins. And by his resurrection, he proves that that sacrifice was accepted. And therefore, anybody who's connected to him by faith is forgiven and now in a right relationship with God. And it's not about proximity to a building, right? It's about this relationship with God through Jesus. Jesus is the king of Judah. Joash could never have been. Not just because he rightly valued the temple, but because he is the temple. Jesus is the priesthood that Israel needed. Because he's not in it for just pocketing the, the, the glory for himself. No, he's in it actually to glorify God by rescuing sinners. And rather than live by self-service, Jesus models for us loving, self-sacrificing service. So different. Real worship is seen in a real relationship with God through Jesus, the Son of David. You, know, you might ask the question, wait a minute, where am I on that? How am I doing? If we make worship all about ourselves, and then we solve our own problems, right, without recourse, without going to the Lord, right, if it's all about us solving the problem, we pay off King Hazael, we get it done, right? If, that, if that's our approach to life, that leads to two kind of faulty responses, okay? Work with me on this. But on the one hand, if you think you're going to buy your way out of trouble, and then it doesn't work out, or certainly it's questionable whether or not it's going to work out, that leads to fear and anxiety, right? It's like, ah, oh, we got this problem. Uh, Hazel's here with the army, and can we raise enough money to get, is there enough in the temple treasury to get it? Do I have enough in the bank account to make it work, right? And we've been there where maybe it's financial stress, maybe it's a health stress situation, and we're like freaking out. We got to solve it. We got to fix it, and we can't fix it. And that self-reliance leads to fear and anxiety because we're not that great, right? We're, we don't have infinite resources to solve all these problems. So there's fear and anxiety. On the other hand, though, sometimes maybe we have a problem and we say we're going to pay off King Hazel. We write the check and we pay off King Hazel. And all of a sudden we're feeling pretty good. We say we dealt with the problem. And now it's pride and self-reliance and self-righteousness, right? Look at what I've done. But real worship, it's not either of those, right? Real worship says when we don't have the resources, instead of fear, we have faith. And we look to the Lord and we say, Lord, please glorify yourself provide and lead and show me how to respond to this circumstance. And when God does provide, we never say, look at what I did. Instead, we say, God, may you be praised for providing forgiveness and for providing to meeting this need, right? Whatever the situation is, right? There's like, wow, it's worship is the response. You ever notice that, how real worship actually promotes real worship? That real worship is seen in a real relationship with God. Jesus' point to to those who were misunderstood that spirituality was about a building, right? He's saying, listen, I'm the connector here. I'm the true temple. And by my death and resurrection, you can be made right with God. And that, that is the secret to true worship. Because that relationship with God through Jesus, right, it transcends any place we can be. Now we're equipped to walk by faith anywhere, under any trial, right, under any challenge. And you say, well, what about all the, the, the actual practical things that have to be done? You know, Jesus told us what to do. He said, seek first, right, my kingdom, and then the rest will take care of itself. 
So that's the, it's just a matter of priorities, right? doesn't mean we don't act, but it means every time we act, we act in a way where God's kingdom and his glory is our number one priority. Because real worship is seen in a real relationship with God through the greater son of David, Jesus. That's what we are called to. That's what we were made to experience. And maybe, right, maybe our struggles, our failures are a, a symptom of secondhand faith. I just encourage you this morning, if you feel like maybe you're struggling with that, right, instead of like, oh, you know, you're sweeping it under the rug or, or just trying to ignore it, can I just encourage you to confront it? You say, wait a minute, am, am I the real deal? Because God puts passages like this in the Bible to help us, right, to help us root out insincere worship in our lives. And sometimes it's just, you know, there's a little pocket of it over here, and it's, it's in my attitude towards money or my attitude towards my job, or it's in this, you know, and it's like, I, gotta, I need to deal with it, right? And so the Lord says, here, let me show you. This is the deal. Real worship, it's about the real relationship. It's not about just being close to the temple. It's not about just being around other people who are spiritual. Maybe have some courage in this regard. You say, okay, Lord, I need to deal with this. And what does Jesus say? Jesus doesn't come to you with just condemnation and say, yeah, you're terrible. You should have repaired the temple 23 years ago. Jesus comes and he says, yes, you failed. But where you have failed, I've succeeded. And he says, I'm here for you. That's why real worship works. Because real worship is seen in that real relationship with God through Jesus. There's forgiveness there. There's provision for failure there. And there are promises there for the future. The fact is, Jesus has said, I will be with you always. To the end of the age, I'm with you. So let's go. And maybe that's where we need to get. Maybe we need to get to that spot today where we say, you know what? I'm not going to be Joash or these priests. I'm not going to walk that road of secondhand faith or lack of integrity or letting greed drive the bus or just doing what the culture says I should do. You know what? I'm going to say it's Jesus first. And that's how I'm going to function. That's how I'm going to operate my life. And then that, that decision-making grid, right now all of a sudden you're equipped to live a daily life winning that worship battle where instead of you being the God, you are walking step in step with Jesus. He's leading you, right? You're worshiping. And it's seen in that relationship with him. Real worship is seen in a real relationship with God through Jesus, the greater son of David. Some of you have had the opportunity to go to Jerusalem with me Others of you have been there. Um, you go to Jerusalem, you visit the, the site of the, the temple, and the, the foundation for the temple complex that Herod the Great had built during the life of Jesus, that actually is still there today. So it's really remarkable. You can, you know, there, it's all still there, massive stones. And, uh, and the, the site of the temple is more or less pretty clear. You can kind of see where it was. Most people think it's where the current uh, Dome of the Rock is, a, a mosque that's on the Temple Mount. And so you can kind of see, hey, that's probably where the temple was. And people, pilgrims, from uh, Judaism and Christianity will come, and they will come to that spot. And for some, they'll they'll visit actually on top of the Temple Mount. Jews can't, so they just go to the closest spot they can get, which is in this western side of the temple. It's called the Western Wall Plaza there. They'll go there, and every day they will go, and they will pray, right? They will bring uh, prayer requests, and some people will take prayer requests and write them down and stick them in the rocks in the wall, right? And the whole idea of all of that is that to be close to the temple or where the temple was, right, that makes you closer to God. And I'm all about visiting Jerusalem. I'm all about seeing it. It's really interesting. It's very helpful for our faith in some senses. But you are no closer to God at the Western Wall than you are right here in New Jersey. 
And that's an important thing to know. And the fact is, you're no closer to God when you're in Green Pond Bible Chapel than when you're down at Target on 24, or when you're sitting in traffic on 287. You're no, you're no closer to God here at Green Pond Bible Chapel than when you are in your kitchen at home or in your living room or sitting in front of your computer at work, right? Because real worship's not about a place. It's not about a show. It's not about proximity to other spiritual people. Real worship is seen in that real relationship with God through Jesus. And what Jesus has done is what no temple can do. He has provided an eternal, an eternal resolution to the problem where sinners are put in right relationship with God forever. Because it doesn't depend on us, it depends on Him. Now we are free to value Him above all else. Again, my friend John Newton, he said it this way. He said, He is the great temple. He is the great temple. And Christians, right, don't have to fear idolatry when they worship and honor the Son, even as the Father. It's a great quote. He's saying, when you get your mind around and your heart around this truth that Jesus is the great temple, you don't have to be afraid of idolatry because instead of making yourself the God, you will honor Jesus, right? That there's protection in that. And so maybe the biggest takeaway today is not so much the I shouldn't do this, but it's rather, what should I do? I should value Jesus above all else. He is the great temple. And where Joash failed, where the priests failed, Jesus has succeeded, and he is worthy. And so don't take all the stuff that's supposed to be dedicated to him, namely all of you, right? And don't go selling those to try to buy happiness and buy satisfaction and buy contentment. You keep all that stuff, and you say, Lord, you've given me this, and now I surrender it to you. What have you called me to? I belong to you. That's real worship because it's seen in that real relationship. My prayer is that God would lead us to be real worshipers of Jesus. Would you pray with me and we'll ask him to help us do just that. Lord, again, we pause this morning and we confess that we do struggle daily with the, the, the worship battle. We, we struggle, Lord, not so much, you know, worshiping these contrived mythological gods and goddesses. Lord, we struggle, especially in our nation, we struggle making ourselves God. For our desires are all that we care about. And Lord, even on our, on our bad days, Lord, we might come to you and see you as an end to the means. That you exist to serve us. Lord, may we never, may we never be content with that. Lord, we pray that you would help us to discern if we have secondhand faith. If our, if our claim to be followers of Jesus is just a show, we pray that you would expose that, Lord, to help us, to help us with real worship of you. And Lord, we see these failures of Joash and the priests, and we recognize, Lord, that's, that's easily us, where we, we want to please the culture, we want to fit in, Lord, where we're greedy and we want to keep for ourselves. And Lord, tragically often, where we try to solve our own problems outside of dependence on you. So, Lord, we thank you for this reminder this morning that you are trustworthy, that you are worthy of this absolute devotion, and that that real worship, Lord, should manifest itself in a real relationship with you. It doesn't have anything to do with a building. But, Lord Jesus, it has everything to do with faith in you. 
we pray that you'd help us. Help us to confess our sin. Help us to receive comfort because you did die and rebuild the temple in three days. Lord, we praise you for that. And we praise you for this new calling to walk in every aspect of our lives, honoring you above all else. Lord, even as we stumble, we thank you that we are forgiven because of your grace. And we ask that you would graciously lead us in real worship as we live in relationship with you. Help us do that now, even as we leave. We ask these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.